everybody. Welcome back to the So We Speak podcast. This is Cole Fix, and this is Terry Fix with me today for part two of our Exodus podcast. So last week, we started out, we got Israel out of Egypt, and now we are at an undisclosed location in modern-day Egypt. <laughs> That's right. Down at the bottom of the Sinai Peninsula. So I want to go back for a moment uh, before we dive into the new material for today, which will be from chapter 19 all the way to the end of Exodus. And just recap for a moment that the Exodus, as we talked about, is not just the people leaving Egypt. They have a plan. Moses is supposed to bring the people back to Sinai where God is going to speak to his people. And if you're reading this book on like a Bible reading plan, for example, it seems like all the action happens in the first 18 chapters. Right. And then after that, you get this long, tedious... Uh, span of scripture where they're giving a lot of requirements and things. It's like the fine print in your cell phone contract. Yes. So you're getting the law, you're getting regulations. In fact, this is kind of the funny thing about our conceptions of scripture. In Exodus, you really don't get that much law. You get a little bit of law. It's Leviticus where you really get a lot of the law. Right. In Exodus, what you get is the patterns and... Uh, specifications for building the tabernacle, the wilderness tabernacle, mm-hmm. the priestly garments, setting up the, the system that they're going to use. So in some ways, this is really different than what you see in Leviticus and Deuteronomy, whereas you see some overlap, but there's not a ton of moral law in here. There's a lot about what they should be wearing, what they should be doing, how they should be going about it, what they should be um, worshiping inside of in terms of the tabernacle. Right, Leviticus. By the way, just so you don't think that didn't that Leviticus is some kind of an add-on. For example, in Leviticus twenty-seven verse thirty-four, it says, "These are the commands that Yahweh gave Moses on Mount Sinai." So not only are the commands that we see here what God gave Moses, so is Leviticus. They're just not all told to us in this book. Right. They are. They their focus is pretty different. Yeah. In terms of what they cover. So we're at Mount Sinai, and Moses has led the people across the Red Sea. They have already defeated a couple of people on their way, and now they stop, and you've got, you know, scholars debate on how many people there are at this point, but certainly in the neighborhood of a million people who are at the slopes of Mount Sinai. And Moses begins by going up on the mountain, and God speaks to Moses up there. This isn't really something that we've seen before in the Bible up until this point. It almost makes you wonder for a moment, well, how does Moses know what to do here? Right. He is, he is embarking on a completely new kind of leadership. In some ways, he's the first unified leader of Israel. So you have a family that goes into Egypt, Abraham's descendants, and when they come out, now you have the first proto-king, proto-judge, proto-prophet, proto-priest, all right. wrapped up into Moses. Right. And in some ways, the story of Exodus and the books after that, all the way through Deuteronomy, are a description of what Moses is like and what he's doing and how he is trying to lead uh, the people of God. And so I want to frame one of the aspects of Exodus in terms of Moses' role, which we see in the New Testament. He is a mediator. So he is the go-between between the people of Israel and between God. And so in some ways you have, there's never a leader uh, among Israel like Moses, but you also have, you never have a prophet like Moses until Jesus comes that the Lord speaks face to face like someone would speak with his friend. 
And you can actually see this happening in the book of Exodus. So in chapter 19, for example, seven times you see the word descend. Moses descends the mountain. That is him going from God to Israel, representing God to Israel. Then in chapter 24, you see seven times he ascends the mountain. So mm -hmm. he's representing Israel to God. He, he is standing in the gap, and he's playing a very unique role. And I think his character is really at the center of what this book is about. Yes, I think so too. And don't forget how Moses started out you know, five times telling God, I'm not capable, I'm not your guy. He was really intimidated. Uh, well, Aaron's going to speak for you, etc. And now look where he is. And there's a sense about Moses, as great as Moses is in terms of being faithful to God, mm -hmm. don't ever lose sight of the fact that Moses was not the sharpest tool in the shed. <laughs> in the sense that God is using Moses because Moses is faithful. And of course, Moses is growing in that. Mm -hmm. But I think sometimes we look at Moses in this stage and we think, wow, we could never be like that. I just don't want you to forget where he came from. But you're right. Moses is faithful. God has shaped Moses through all those difficulties with Pharaoh and with the Israelites complaining against him. I mean, he's had a really difficult job, mm -hmm. and God has shaped him through that. And to just a small practical application, I know a lot of you listening to this feel like God has put you in a pressure cooker at work or your, your life in general has, you know, just sort of like events are piling on to you. And Moses is a great example that, Stick close to God and he will see you through. And in fact, you won't even recognize yourself on the other side. It's hard to recognize this Moses, the one who comes down the mountain angry at them, mm -hmm. at the rebellion, who's such a commanding figure, the one who's seen God face to face and his, his face shines afterwards. Mm -hmm. It's hard to, to reconcile that Moses with the Moses back in chapter four. Yeah, that's very true. There's a big transformation that's taken place in, in his leadership and in his Trust in God, that's the thing that you see come through, I think, the most clearly is he's not afraid. He's frustrated, but he's not afraid of the Israelites because he's uh, more afraid of God. So he begins to go up and down the mountain, and he hears from God, and, and God says to him in chapter 19, these are the words that you should speak to the people of Israel. And so he calls the elders together, and he begins to tell them what it is that God has told him. And the first thing we see almost directly out of the gate in chapter 22 is a list of the Ten Commandments. And I want us to spend a little bit of time talking about the law, what the purpose of the law is. And most of the time when we think about the law, we think about the Ten Commandments. So what, what, it, what are these, what is this list of rules that we're supposed to be doing? Um, you get in Exodus a little bit of law before that. Right. And I just want to point out that if you're reading this, you will see the Ten Commandments in, in verse 20. I mean, I think I said 22, but in, in chapter 20, you'll see God put a relational framework in front of all of the commands. So, for example, in, in chapter 20, verse 1, God spoke all these things saying, I'm the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. Therefore, you shall have no, God, no other gods before me. So what God is saying is, I think, twofold. In, in one sense, he's reminding them that he brought them out for a purpose. And the broader purpose is to have a relationship with them. But the more narrow purpose is God is telling them, look at what I've done for you. I get to make the rules. Mm -hmm. I want to go back. Do you have thoughts on how this interacts with the first half of this book? So we spent a lot of time in the first podcast talking about God 
deconstructing and judging the gods of Egypt. Right. And Egypt is an evil place in terms of what those people were doing. And now God has some rules for his own people that are going to be different than what they just came out of in Egypt. Right. Yeah, there's so many things to say here. But first of all, God spent the first part establishing the fact that uh, so that the whole world may know that I am Yahweh. I am God. I'm the only God. I'm the only authentic God. I am the power. I am mm-hmm. the creator. You know, as we look at God, we say, you, you are the true creator of the universe. Well, given that status, one would expect, after he's established that and the people come out, they'd say, oh no, you're the all-powerful creator of the universe uh, what do we do to serve you? Mm-hmm. You know, like we serve the Egyptian idols, the gods right. that weren't really gods. You know, we bring you food. Do you want us to do these things for you? And I think it's just phenomenal that God begins, like you said, in relational terms. Mm-hmm. You know, you will be my people. I will be your God. I brought you out of Egypt for a purpose. And you get this sense of instead of a, a one-sided constitution, it says, okay, you're my slaves, and this is what I want you to run around and do for me. It's more of, I'll be your God, you'll be my people. I will give you protection. You know, I brought you out, and here is the covenant, the, the nature of our relationship. Because what strikes me, Cole, in the Ten Commandments is vertical and horizontal relationships. But the fact that I just said the word relationships in a constitution or mm-hmm. a covenant... If you think about it, as great as the American Constitution is, it's not relational. Mm-hmm. It's you know it's basically laws, and it is principles, and it's probably the best in the world, in my opinion. Nevertheless, this is a relationship, and this is the definition, and it's very moral mm-hmm. in its in its sense. I mean, if you wanted to, you could, I suppose. Some people do look at the Ten Commandments as an explication of the summary commandments. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. Now, I'm not saying that's the only way to look at the Ten Commandments, but it is vertical and horizontally relational. Mm -hmm. Yeah, these laws are going to be the things that actually guide the relationship between God and Israel. So the, the major point of the book of Exodus is that God has brought his people out to be their God, and they'll be his people. And that's what we're going to see at the very end of the book. But in order to do that, they've got to know how you relate to God. And that's one of the big purposes of the law that we see um, applicable for the life of Israel and for our lives now is there are certain ways that you relate to God. And um, part of that is not sinning, not being sinful in the presence of God. Um, But part of it is, too, that God has preferences. There are better ways than others since he's the creator of humanity for the way that we do almost everything. Right. And and almost you'd be hard pressed to find an area of life that's not touched on at some point in the book of Exodus. Well, if I could add in here too that I don't want you to lose sight of the big picture. This isn't a matter of God saying, Okay, now that I'm in charge, we're gonna do things according to my preferences. We're gonna do things the way I want to do. Don't ever forget that we're still in the middle of a plan of redemption. Mm-hmm. God is still bringing sinful humanity from the fall after the garden to the cross and to the, the garden in the end, the new heaven and the new earth. And so this law shouldn't be seen as, well, dad's here now and dad's got his rules. It's more of a, these things are going to shape you as part of the plan of redemption. So it's not arbitrary. 
No, and I think we can get to that in a moment when we get to the content of the law, but there, there isn't anything arbitrary about it. And it's rooted in the fact that God is a creator and a redeemer. So mm-hmm. like you said, we shouldn't lose sight of that. Now, there's a pretty incredible scene in chapter 19 when Israel comes up to the mountain. There are thunders, lightning, cloud on the mountain, a trumpet blast so that all the people tremble. Moses bring, brings the people out of the camp and the mountain is wrapped in smoke, it says, um, because the Lord had descended on it in fire. And the Lord came down on Mount Sinai, it says in verse 20, to the top of the mountain. And the Lord called Moses to the top of the mountain, and Moses went up. I mean, this, is, this must have been pretty incredible to witness, this thunderous, burning, um, cloudy, lightning mm-hmm. top of the mountain, and then Moses goes up in there. And you may not be convinced that Moses is ever going to come back down. And, right. and I think later they, they actually do think that he is dead up there. Can you imagine standing there and go, are we, are we safe here? Is yeah. this thing about to explode? You know, it, the awe and the fear right. of the power that they were witnessing had to be just amazing. And it's important to remember the description of this mountain because later in chapter 24, which I think is the, probably the most important chapter of the book of Exodus, um, the people are going to go up there. So what happens is Moses, in, in, after he gives them the laws about some of the moral laws, some of the Sabbaths and festivals in 21 through 23, um, God tells Moses to go get the people. And so Moses comes down and he gets Aaron, Nadab, Abihu, the 70 elders of Israel, and uh, they were worshiping. And, and then Moses goes up a little further. And what happens is the people end up going up and uh, they, they actually get to eat a meal in the presence of God. So in verse 9, Moses Aaron, Nadab, and Abihu, the 70 elders of Israel, went up and they saw the God of Israel. There was under his feet, as it were, a pavement of sapphire stone like the very heaven for clearness. And he did not lay his hand on the chief men of the people of Israel. They beheld God and they ate and they drank. This is a covenant meal. So every covenant in Scripture has a meal attached to it. The new covenant has the, mm-hmm. the meal of communion attached mm-hmm. to it. But every covenant has a meal attached to it. And so as Israel is making this covenant with God, they have a feast together with him. And it is not just a celebration of the covenant. It's sitting down um, in peace terms with each other. So you're now seated at the table of the person you've made this covenant with, and you're declaring peace with each other. And so God is declaring that with Israel. It's a very strange thing and difficult to explain how they were supposed to, they could go up on the mountain and see the Lord and live because nobody can see God and live. So we think probably there's there's a lot of ways that people try to explain this. Maybe they don't see him, they see his feet or they see the mm-hmm. angel of the Lord or something like that. But this passage is pretty bold. They saw God. And so these are the leaders of Israel and they've made a covenant all together with God. And then God eats with them. And then we're going to go and Moses is going to tell us what it is that God has told him up on this mountain. But this is just a pretty remarkable mm-hmm. scene in the Old Testament. That's a great observation about the meal. You know, you think forward, fast forward to the book of Revelation and the wedding feast of the Lamb, the consummation of that covenant. Uh, uh, you think about communion. You know, the remembrance is built around a table. This idea of a, around a meal is a really good observation you make because you see that at really key times. Yeah, the thing that we see next is Moses is going to give seven speeches in chapter 25 through 31. 
and this is almost like a recreation of the universe. So like the seven days of creation, you have these seven speeches. And one of the things to pay attention to as you read through this section is that the way that the, the ark and the tabernacle are built mm-hmm. is very similar to the way the Garden of Eden is built. So, for example, if you look down in 25 verse 19, the, the Ark of the Covenant um, has a, a little place on the top called the Mercy Seat. And the Mercy Seat is where the presence of God dwells. And over the Mercy Seat, there are two guardians of the presence of God, which are cherubim, which are angels. Mm-hmm. And it says, make one cherub on each end, and uh, of one piece with the Mercy Seat, make them. And the cherubim shall spread out their wings above, overshadowing the mercy seat with their wings, their faces one to another towards the mercy seat on the top of the ark. And it says in verse 22, There I will meet with you from above the mercy seat, from between the two cherubim uh, that are on the ark of the testimony. I'll speak with you about all that I will give you in commandment for the people of Israel. So this should sound very familiar, because Mm -hmm. when Adam and Eve are expelled from the garden, God sends a cherub with a flaming sword to stand guard over the garden. And this requires a little bit of a biblical geography lesson. So if you look at the book of Genesis, the you, you, you have to pay close attention to what the text actually says versus what it is that we typically think of. So mm-hmm. we think of the Garden of Eden. But actually there's a land called Eden, and then in Eden there's a garden. There's a garden. Right. So you have the surrounding world, then you have a smaller area called Eden. Then you have a smaller area called the Garden of Eden. And once Adam and Eve are kicked out, they are moved out of the Garden of Eden, out into Eden. Mm-hmm. And then one of the things you see is Cain, after he slays Abel, is moved to the east of Eden. He is now out of that second ring, right, further from the presence of God. The tabernacle is set up this exact same way. There are three layers of of the universe, really, but especially mm-hmm. of the presence of God. So you have the Ark of the Covenant, mm-hmm. which has cherubim guarding the presence of God, which is like the Garden of Eden. Then outside of that, you have the tabernacle itself, mm-hmm. which is like Eden. Mm-hmm. And then outside of that, you have the people of Israel, you have the, the whole world. And the temple is built this exact same way. Right. 500 so years or 400 years later, the temple will be built the exact same three layers. Exactly. You have the court of the Gentiles, then you have the inner courts for the Jews, and then you have the Holy of Holies, where the Ark of the Covenant is. And so you'll see as you go through here, whether it be the lampstands that mirror trees, they look a lot like olive trees and mm-hmm. things that you'll see in, in the Garden of Eden, um, whether, whether it's the way that the uh, curtains eventually are built, whether it's the way the priests look. A lot of this is reminiscent of the Garden of Eden. And it's a reminder that these people are coming back into the presence of God. So as you go through here, these descriptions can be a little bit tedious to get through. But there's all kinds of little connectors to what's happened before and what's going to happen in the future. And this goes on for quite a while. This goes on until chapter 31. Mm -hmm. And um, you're going to get very specific instructions for what the people are going to do. And so finally, in chapter 31, we get, I think what's one of my favorite parts of the book of Exodus, we get introduced to two very unique characters named Bezalel and Oholiab. And these guys are the 
designers and the metal workers, and uh, they're going to be the ones that build all of this stuff that God has just described. And this would have been a really interesting job to get in ancient Israel. I mean, can you imagine if you were part of the people of Israel, and basically God tells Moses in verse in chapter 31, verse 1, the Lord said to Moses, See, I have called my name Bezalel, the son of Uri, the son of Hur, the tribe of Judah, and I have filled him with the Spirit of God. This is really an interesting phrase uh-huh. um, that you don't see a ton here in the Torah, but you saw it in Genesis 1, 2, the Spirit of God is hovering over the waters. Mm-hmm. Uh, so the Spirit of God is the creative power of God in the Old Testament. And so the spirit with ability and intelligence, with knowledge and all craftsmanship to devise artistic designs, to work in gold, silver, and bronze, cutting stones, carving wood, and work in every craft. And behold, I have appointed with him Aholiab, the son of Ahisamach of the tribe of Dan, and I will give to them the abilities uh, that they may make all that I've commanded you. So this is is really fascinating that you get these two Mm -hmm. guys that are called by name to be the builders Mm -hmm. of what they're going to need is Israel. And so I've always wondered, I'll ask you this question. Do you think that these guys just all of a sudden, it was like a, they like had a hard drive or something and they just downloaded the ability to do all this stuff? Or do you think these guys were already maybe carpenters and metal Uh workers and, and God calls them because they happen to already be talented? That's a great question. I'm going to, obviously I'm going to give you an opinion because the text doesn't tell us this, but my opinion is it's much like it is today. I don't know what they did in Egypt, but I wonder if these men already had this ability. They, they showed some natural talent, and they were given training, and they were used for specialized tasks in Egypt, and it's as though God had prepared them from the beginning for this time. Right. Yeah, I don't know how long they had been prepared, but I just think it's very cool that all of a sudden, the Spirit of God is going to give them the ability and the intelligence to do all the stuff that mm-hmm. God wants them to do. I think that's a pretty easy parallel to today, whether or not it's a passion that you've had for your whole life, or whether it's something like a spiritual gift that comes at the right time for the up- uplifting of the church. Um, God will provide you with the skills you need to do what He's called you to do. And may already have. You know the statement that kind of the kind of the cute statement that God doesn't call the equipped, God equips the called. And I think that's true, but I also think that he starts a long time before you and I realize it. I mean, Mm -hmm. we can look back into your past. I can look back into my past. I'm sure everybody listening can do the same and say, you know, I never saw this coming into play in service, and yet it did. And, you know, God saw that long before Mm -hmm. you needed it. So I kind of tend to see this that way. They didn't know they had it in them, and then they realized, oh, I do. And the Spirit equip them for it. Yeah. So this is the last part of these speeches that Moses gives. And in verse, uh, down in verse 18, God says that he's going to give them a sign. He's going to give them laws. And he gave to Moses when he finished speaking with him on Mount Sinai, two tablets of the testimony, tablets of stone written with the very finger of God. Now this would be a great place for the book of Exodus to end. This would have been a very nice place for it to end. But Unfortunately, the Israelites, showing their true colors, <laughs> cannot even get through the 40 days and 40 nights that Moses is on the mountain without uh-huh. having something terrible happen. So what, what happens next? Yeah, this is greatest. Uh, let me just read chapter 32 as it opens. When the people saw that Moses delayed to come down from the mountain, in other words, he's been up there, we don't know that yet, but 40 days, 40 nights, uh, they 
they're about halfway skittish and a little scared, you know, this God, this powerful God. The people gathered themselves together to Aaron, because Aaron had been left in charge, and said to him, get up, make us gods who shall go before us. Here's what they said. is, It's time to get out of here. It's time to move on. Can't stay here forever. As for this Moses, the man who brought us up out of the land of Egypt, we have no idea what has become of him. And so they're basically impatient. Does yeah. that sound similar for to modern times, I'm impatient for God to act, and so I'm going to take matters into my own hand. And that's what they do. And they said, but if we're going to move forward as a people, you know, we're going to need some kind of gods, some kind of totem, some kind of standard before us. Can't just be a mob walking around. So get up and make us some idols who will go before us. And Aaron, this is maybe the even more surprising thing, does it. And so he gathers up their gold, and they make a golden calf. Yeah, this is obviously one of the low points for the history of Israel, and it's a story that we've told a lot. Uh, the making of the golden calf is just about as idolatrous as you can be. However, when you study this text, it's unclear exactly what they thought they were doing. Right. So they have likely not heard the Ten Commandments yet, since Moses right. is just coming down, but here they are violating the very first two commandments. And... I'm struck, though, by what Aaron does. Yes. So Aaron does get blamed for this later, so we know that this is not a good thing. And I'm not, so I'm not trying to alleviate the burden. But I wonder, and I read a paper about this a couple of years ago, somebody arguing that Aaron really wasn't doing what it looks like he's doing here. So the people make, they make this statue, and they say in, in verse 4, These are your gods... O Israel, so plural, that's kind of an interesting thing, mm -hmm. who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. And then Aaron says, he sees this and he builds an altar. And Aaron made a proclamation and said, tomorrow shall be a feast day to the Lord, to Yahweh. Yahweh. Right. What's going on here? Yeah, that's great. And you know, different people have different perspectives on this. I can agree that Aaron hadn't turned completely away from Yahweh, but there's no way to put enough lipstick on this pig for it to be attractive. I mean, they yeah. clearly have cast their gods, who would be subservient maybe. The best spin you can put on this is they have cast uh, images, representatives of Yahweh that will physically go before them and be their totem even though they still believe in Yahweh. Mm -hmm. And it's hard to get around the idea of idolatry. It's just maybe not as blatant as we thought. Yeah, I wonder how complicit Aaron is in this. I wonder if he's trying to kind of bring the, the mob of people back into some semblance of what they're supposed to be. God certainly doesn't uh, think that it's a very right. good thing for the people to do. Uh, so he is very angry. He tells Moses, you better go down there because these people, I've, I've seen them, they are stiff-necked people. And let me alone that my wrath may burn hot against them and consume them. So Moses mm -hmm. does what he does several times throughout this series. He intercedes for the people of Israel. He goes down and uh, he punishes the people of Israel for doing this. And then <clears throat> he has to go back up again and get another set of tablets. Moses makes the new tablets in chapter 34. And then they have to renew the covenant. So right. it's like they couldn't even get done making the first one before <laughs> they um, violated their terms of the covenant. And so now they have to make another covenant with God with a new set of Ten Commandments. And Moses comes down. This is a cool passage in, in chapter 34 where mm -hmm. Moses comes down 
and his face is shining because he has been in the presence of God. Mm-hmm. Exactly. I mean, I just think that's fascinating. So he spends the 40 days and nights, uh, God writes again on there, but Moses comes down with the two tablets and Moses did not know, this is 34 verse 29, that the skin of his face shone because he had been talking with God. Mm. And they were afraid to come near him when they saw that his face was shining. Yeah. Uh, you know, I, uh, I'm reaching here a little bit, but I do, I have known people who have, were in the process of being sanctified and they were saints that were much more mature than I, had followed Christ a lot longer than I had. And I'm not saying that their face shone, but being in their presence, there was just something that radiated from them because they had been in the presence of God. And I mean that by having been in his word and followed him. I don't mean a miraculous like Moses did. But there is a sense in which the closer we get to God through his word and through following him, the more we shine with the spirit of God inside mm-hmm. us. Yeah, I think that's really true. And I think, you know, there's several passages in the New Testament that talk about people seeing you and because of that being pointed to God. You know, Paul does an interesting thing with this passage in 2 Corinthians chapter 3. He takes it less as the people cannot look at Moses and more as the people who don't believe in Christ when they open the scriptures are still blinded Mm -hmm. by seeing what's really there. So he Mm -hmm. says, like Moses, we are very bold we go with an unveiled face. And what he means by that is we can actually see the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. I'm mm-hmm. like, no. Um, I want to fast forward to the end of the book and just wrap up the kind of walkthrough here before we do some takeaways. So in chapter 40, they celebrate and they erect the tabernacle. And uh, Moses tells the people that this is, this is the way we're going to worship now. And in the end, you get a really interesting paragraph in the book of Exodus. So, Mm -hmm. then the cloud covered the tent of meeting, and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. And Moses was not able to enter the tent of meeting because the cloud settled on it. And the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. Throughout all their journeys, whenever the cloud was taken up from over the tabernacle, the people of Israel would set out. But if the cloud was not taken up, they did not set out till the day that it was taken up. For the cloud of the Lord was on the tabernacle by day, and fire was in it by night in the sight of all the house of Israel throughout all their journeys. So you get this amazing picture of they build it and God's presence comes down. This is exactly what happens in the new temple. So when they dedicate right. the temple um, in Second King, or in First Kings chapter 8, they see the glory of the Lord come into the temple and dwell there in the Holy of Holies. And so this is a pretty cool end of the book of Exodus. It is, and you're going to have to pardon me because I'm ruined now. All I can see is the last scene in Indiana Jones. Yeah. You know, where he's tied up and the Nazis open the, the mm-hmm. ark and he says, close your eyes. And then, of course, all those cherubim <laughs> and all this. You know, this is kind of what's in my mind is what was happening here with mm-hmm. the Israelites. But in all seriousness, uh, it is amazing to me, fast forwarding a little bit to the 40 years in the desert, that they could have seen this every day mm-hmm. and still be unfaithful. It makes me think when I hear, and I've thought this myself, is gosh, why doesn't God just do a miracle right now and then I would believe him forever? Well, I don't think so because look what the Israelites saw. 
And I don't think I'm morally superior to them. I think human nature is human nature. And I really mm-hmm. think we are a very fickle people. Yeah. And uh, so, yeah, this is a it's amazing picture. It's really interesting, too, that you see objects that are made with craftsmanship. They're the best that humans can make, but they're not really special until the presence of God comes on them. They're holy, not because they're artistic. They're holy because God's presence is there. Mm-hmm. Yeah, presence, I think, is the theme of this book. And I think it's something that we see at the end of the, of the, end of the book, is we have God dwelling again, albeit in a different way, in the midst of his people. Now, there's still a separation between God and his people, and that's, that's very significant too, but mm-hmm. God is again dwelling with his people. This is Eden partially regained at the end of the book of Exodus. However, there's an interesting line here. Even Moses cannot right. go into the tent of meeting at this point because uh, the cloud and the fire are too intense. And it makes you ask the question, okay, if Moses can't go in there, who can go in there? And I think that's what the book of Leviticus speaks to, is what does it take to be back into the presence of God? And we're going to get the whole priestly uh-huh. ordination. We're going to see what it looks like for them to be able to go before God one time a year, high priest, and uh, be able to make atonement for the people of Israel. But as far as takeaways go, um, what are your big takeaways from the end of this book? Uh, Exodus, to me, is... You obviously have the Exodus motif. So that's a theme that's going to run through the Bible. But the biggest thing to me goes back to Sinai, more than even coming out, is the covenant and the where God forms a people, which is, in my view, a precursor of the church. Mm-hmm. You know, God's chosen people through no merit of their own, but God's grace. I mean, that yeah. is literally Ephesians 2.8. You're saved by grace through faith uh, and not by works. And right. so we too are Israel in the sense mm. that we are chosen. We're made into a people. We're in in, the, in their case, they're made into a people through a covenant. In our case, we're literally adopted into the family mm-hmm. of God. And so I, I do tend to see Exodus as a forecast of the glory of, of being a Christian. One of the things that strikes me in reading this in preparation for this is you think about they couldn't go in. They had a covenant. They had a mediator. Think about the New Testament. The curtain of the temple is torn in two and God is no longer on the mercy seat. He's mm-hmm. no longer sitting there. Think about Ephesians 1.13. When you believed, you were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit and you realize we have a far more intimate contact with God than they ever did. And do I really... Has that sunk into me? Mm -hmm. Does that really, do I live like I literally have that intimate connection with Mm -hmm. God? Yeah, this has got so many connections with the New Testament in terms of what it was that Jesus came to do. The pairing of the temple curtain, obviously, I think is one of the foremost things that we're supposed to remember what it was like when people couldn't go past that curtain. Right. And then when when God gets loose afterwards. And God gets loose afterwards. How about for you? What are some key takeaways? Well, one of the things I really like, and this this is where you just have to to pay attention if you're doing a Bible reading plan through here to some of the unique things. Like, for example, in chapter 30, I've always loved this. God has his own scent. He has his own perfume line. 
in the history of Israel. So in chapter 30, verse 34, the Lord says to Moses, take sweet spices and then a bunch of these ingredients. I have no uh-huh. idea what these are. Frankincense. Um, and make an incense blended by the perfumer, seasoned with salt, pure and holy. And you, uh, you put part of it before the testimony in the tent of meeting. And it shall be holy. And the incense that you shall make according to its composition, you shall not make for yourselves. This is reserved for God. It shall be holy to the Lord. And whoever makes any like it, it's copyrighted. Yeah. Cut off from your people. It just makes you wonder what that smelled like. I mean, it's it is God's reserved scent. They were uh-huh. not allowed to make this recipe for anybody else but God. And there's all kinds of little cool things like that in, in this book. But I think the biggest takeaway for me is what we talked about with presence. So the presence of God is the point. And mm-hmm. that's true in the Old Testament and the New Testament. The presence mm-hmm. of God is the point. And that's really encapsulated in this story uh, of Moses. So when the Israelites make the golden calf and Moses, he he goes ahead and um, intercedes for them. Mm -hmm. And they're getting ready to leave at this point. So the the, the chronology is kind of interesting here. Um, a lot of what we what we see in the latter half of the book of, of Exodus is kind of a recap of what they've been doing in more detail. Mm-hmm. But the chronological uh, storyline progresses to where they're about to leave. And he takes Joshua, uh, his assistant, and he starts to give him some responsibility. And the Lord says, or Moses says to the Lord, uh, You say to me, bring up this people, but you have not let me know whom you will send with me. And uh, yet you have said, I know you by name, and you have also found favor in my sight. Now, therefore, if I have found favor, please show me your ways, that I may know you, in order to find favor. Consider, too, that this nation is your people. And God says, my presence will go with you, and I will give you rest. And he says, Moses says, I think this, this, this pretty much summarizes the whole point of this book. If your presence will not go with me, do not bring us up from here. And this is right after where Moses asked God to show him his glory. Mm-hmm. And I just think that is the big takeaway. It, the presence of God is even more important to Moses than the promised land. It's even more important than moving on to what they're supposed to be doing. Right. And that gets really important for Moses in the sense that he's not going to be able to enter the promised land. He's not going to be able to go in, but he does get to go into the presence of God. And right. so it's like, which one would you choose? Right. Would you rather be in the promised land or would you rather be before the face of God? And I think Ligon Duncan made a great connection with this years ago at the Together for the Gospel Conference where he says, you know, Moses didn't get to enter the promised land. But it's not the last time we hear Moses in the Bible because on the Mount of Transfiguration, Moses appears and he looks into the face of Jesus Christ and he gets to see the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. And that's the moment when he gets to enter into the promised land. He used to discuss Jesus' coming exodus. This is really interesting. Yes. It says the word there in the Greek really is the word exodus. Mm-hmm. It can mean departure. That's how it's usually right. translated in the, in the uh, ESV. But right. It says that Moses and Elijah and Jesus are discussing Jesus' coming exodus, mm-hmm. which I think is just so fascinating that Moses had witnessed one exodus, but he was about to witness an even greater exodus right. looking on the face that of Jesus. couldn't have imagined. Yeah. Yeah, that's powerful. You know, the idea of presence, you know, kind of closing thought for me anyway, is the presence of God is what made all these things special. It's what made Israel a special people. It's what made the uh, accoutrements and the, uh, the 
tent and a meeting and all those things were special because of the presence of God. And I fast forward to Christians and the presence of God inside us is what makes us special. It's not just our behavior. It's not just, you know, the way we look or where we go to church or whether we have a fish on the back of our car. It's God's presence in us and in our life that makes us special. Mm -hmm. Thanks for listening to the So We Speak podcast. If you like what you hear, go ahead and leave a comment, leave a review, email us, tell us what you like about it, tell us what you'd improve about it. Thanks to all you guys who are listening, and we'll see you next week on the So We Speak podcast.